This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance sports writer and cat lover in Toronto, Canada. And this week I'm joined by the entire team. Amir Rose Davis, assistant professor of history at Penn State and all-around badass. Jessica Luther, independent writer. General Slayer, an author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape in Austin, Texas. Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History and Undeniable Genius at Hofstra University in New York, and the indomitable and brilliant Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer at Think Progress in D.C. On today's episode, we will actually be discussing United States Soccer Federation elections, we will be talking sexual abuse in swimming, and we have an amazing interview that Lindsay has done with Lindsay Van, this famous American ski jumper. But before we get there, we've been watching a lot of Olympics, we've been seeing everyone's been really excited. I would like to talk to you about films. Now, friends... What inspires you? I mean, Amira, you've talked a lot about Cool Runnings last week, right? And yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> so what movies, if any, had inspired you? Inspired? Well, I don't understand winter sports, so there's none that have inspired me. <laughs> <laughs> there's some I've enjoyed. <laughs> the Mighty Ducks, for instance. Oh, is Mighty classic. Ducks is classic. Yeah. yeah. Cutting yeah. Edge. What's, the Cutting what? Edge. Oh, yeah. he, was, he was my yeah. teacher at NYU. He was? <laughs> what? Yeah. What? I had such a crush on that guy. Jessica, you would love The Cutting Edge. Well, yeah. I never saw it. I never saw it. But what? I like that. No, I never saw it. I, I I, don't know. I'm not like, I usually watch Ingmar Bergman movies and rock back and forth every Saturday night. Of course right. you do. All right. But what's the one, but what's the one with the guy? He's like a ski jumper in England and it's a real tearjerker. Eddie the Eagle. I love Eddie the that Eagle, one. whatever it's I called. I saw that on a I don't plane. know what the movie's called. Yeah. Okay, I love it's that. Good. You guys, have you seen... Yeah, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Hugh Jackman is in this movie, people. It was a big movie. (laughs) It was great. It was great. It was like it was like he embarrassed. Like it shows how stuffy the IOC is because and the yes, you're right. I've never heard of this movie. I've never heard of this movie. What? Now I'm gonna look it up. I'm looking at adorable. Up. He's like this little kid, and the only thing he wants to do is be an Olympian. So he tries everything. Yeah, it's just called and, Eddie the Eagle. Eddie the Eagle he, with Hugh he Jackman. Gets, he's a real guy who eventually competes in the 1988 Olympics. I think. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I was thinking a little more like Men with Brooms. Have you guys seen that curling movie? Probably not. <laughs> no, no. I didn't know there was a curling movie. That's called Men with Brooms. That's, That's a, a real, real name. name. That that is God. Yeah. 
That is an Onion article. That is not true. That is just right. not it's true. It's actually true. It's a 2002. I believe it was directed by Jason Priestley. I could be wrong. But oh that's a punk God, band. <laughs> that's a punk band. Men with brooms. <laughs> okay. Wait, you guys. I need, I need it. Can I issue a correction on myself? Sorry already. I know it's this early in the podcast. But it was actually Ice Castles with Robbie Benson. That was Robbie Benson was my professor. Robbie and Benson it, was your professor he, at NYU? he taught film at nyu and i i ran this club because why not and we did all these like collaboration projects so i would always invite him to come on the panels and speak and he oh loved it God. so much and he could and everyone would just ask him questions about ice castles <laughs> wow. and, and beauty and the beast because of course he was the voice of the beast of course so. he's saying yeah. it, yes mm-hmm. absolutely oh i did not know that this is how i prepared right, for cool. career in journalism everyone just so you know nyu film school <laughs> well shireen i have a question will that men in brooms movie help me understand curling more you guys should have seen me texting shireen this weekend for every and all curling questions i understand that sport not at all we did a lot of googling like a lot of googling yeah. Well, I, that, I laughed because by the time I asked like five questions, Sharice was like, yeah, and here's Wikipedia, by the way. It was really good. It was only featured men, which annoyed me, but it was pretty good. But anyways, I think that's excellent. And some, it was a really cool, um, what's it called? Not cool runnings. The other one. Don't you remember the, um, all the hockey, uh, the hockey slap shot. That's the name of it. Can't believe I forgot it. The hockey movie. Okay, these are all, I'm Canadian, I realize this. Okay, anyways, let's dive into our first segment. On February 10th, U.S. soccer elected its first Latino president, Carlos Cordero, Cordero, sorry, in the first contested election since 1998, that, that other century that some of us lived through. And a lot of people don't realize... we all lived through it. <laughs> Not our listeners necessarily. Oh, okay, you're right. Many, (laughs) many people don't realize that their local club is actually governed by U.S. soccer. So these elections are kind of seen in this abstract way, but they affect real grassroots soccer. So Cordero now will head up U.S. soccer, and then the next level is he represents the U.S. at Concacaf and also at FIFA. So it's a totally vertical structure. The only thing that U.S. soccer doesn't govern in U.S. soccer is high school and college. And one of the interesting things about this election is that it was actually the Athletes Council that opted to vote as a block. They make up about 20% of the voting, and they're the ones that swung it from Kathy Carter, who is another viable candidate. We talked about her a few episodes to go for Carlos Cordero. His Some background on him, he's, he's basically just a longtime fan and amateur player, but he's served a lot of various roles within U.S. soccer, most recently vice president. And he's also represented U.S. soccer already on the CONCACAF Council and FIFA Stakeholders Committee. And I have to say both those posts make me queasy, as well as 30 years of experience working as a banker, Goldman Sachs included. (laughs) So, yeah, right. So a lot in the soccer community, a lot of people have complained he's more of the same. But at the same time, he's a Miami Beach immigrant, and he definitely has shown he cares or understands in at least the theoretical way, the economic challenges of the talented kids out there that U.S. soccer needs to start doing right by. His mom is from Colombia. His father's Portuguese, but he's born and raised in India. Then after his father's death, he immigrated to the U.S. as a teenager, landed a scholarship to Harvard. It's pretty a fabled 
immigrant story. And just the other week on Burn It All Down, I had a full meltdown over the U.S.'s loss of talented Jonathan Gonzalez to Mexico and complained about everything to do with their lack of respect for Latinos and other immigrants. So I kind of feel like this is a hopeful moment, you know, when racist nationalism's on the rise, when all of these politicians are trying to create harmful images of Latinos. It's kind of a cool thing that a Latino immigrant was elected the head of U.S. soccer. So that's that was sort of my rose-colored glasses on the situation, but obviously there's a lot to see. Did you guys pay any attention to it, to the election, or were the Olympics too overwhelmingly cool? Well, I was super interested in um, how low Hope Solo's numbers were. And, I mean, she... They were, she was 1.5% at the end of it, as opposed to his like 40 something percent, I believe. Cordero's like was 48 or 49% and they were very low. I didn't expect her to do well, but I didn't expect her to do that poorly either. Bren, is that right? Well, in the the end, he got about 68%. It's three rounds of voting. So Hope, I think the highest she registered was in the first mm-hmm. round at close to 5%. Yeah. And then as people start to consolidate their votes into blocks and discuss the results, then it gets you know more and more lopsided with each mm-hmm. round. So Cordero really pulled ahead, especially of Kathy Carter and Hope Solo, Kyle Martino, those other candidates registered lower and lower. So, but not a huge number. 5%, I think, was the highest she got close to. Like, how different is this guy from the guy who just left? So there's there's a lot of debate about that. I mean, the the general idea is that Cordero was Gulati's vice president. He is his right-hand man. But he did announce his candidacy before Gulati said he wasn't going to run. So supposedly, at least, like Grant Wall and stuff, seemed to think that that indicated that there was a break that Cordero really saw. And I I think it might have been prompted by the Jonathan Gonzalez and some other cases about the coaches' attitudes towards, uh, quote-unquote, minority players. Yeah, and I mean, Hope Solo... As we have said, all the all the caveats to how problematic she can be. <laughs> but, you know, she did have a lot of good points about how U.S. soccer has treated the women's team while, you know, this vice president was it was one of the leaders. And, you know, there's, I think, reason to be concerned that this was a way to keep kind of the political... I would say relationships at the top of the, you know, FIFA soccer world intact while making a change kind of on the face. But it feels it does feel a little bit more like a cosmetic change than a real change, which is what a lot of people are saying U.S. soccer does need. Yeah, I think that's a huge point. Like, I don't I think what Lynn's just said also leads us leads me to believe rather the fact that there needs to be women at high levels of executive executive positions in these type of federations. And I'm not just saying that because pay equity issues. I'm saying that just generally because consistently men have proven that it's the same thing coming in and out. Like Infantino at FIFA is really truthfully no different. He's just a taller, shinier headed version of Sepp Blatter, in my opinion. So it'll be really interesting what, to see what happens. I mean, there was a lot of friction between the women's national team and Sunil Gelati. So I think we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, I, you know, and see what happens with Cordero and see what type of support he garners from different people. I mean, that'll be very interesting. And to see actually as well, what type of relationship goes forward with the professional leagues. I'm really looking forward to seeing that as well. I mean, in in general, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch because the debacle, quote unquote, of U.S. soccer is so much surrounded the men's team. And one of the things Cordero's proposed is to have new positions within 
U.S. soccer to kind of remove the power of the executive. Now, if that, if that really happens, it would actually open up two new administrative positions that hopefully women could actually occupy over women's soccer, you know, in order to, to manage. So I, I think that could be really interesting. I mean, Kathy Carter's a woman, but, you know, I mean, Clarence Thomas is an African-American and he does nothing for African Americans, like, I mean, I just, I'm not sure. She didn't convince me that she was any necessarily any different than any of the men that were running in this case. Whereas Cordero does speak, you know, he's fluent Spanish speaker. I, I also think he speaks Portuguese, which is really important because there's a lot of Brazilian communities in the U.S. So I guess I just feel like in this mm-hmm. case, there's reason to be cautiously hopeful. <laughs> I'm not hopeful, but okay. <laughs> I actually have to say that I. <laughs> Why are you not hopeful, Lince? Like, what what is it about Cordero that you've seen besides the fact that he was vice president? Because if he wasn't vice president, then people would say he had no experience in U.S. soccer. So, what what for you does that? For me, it's just it just kind of I think you know writing about all the stuff I've been writing about lately. I just don't have faith in any of these institutions anymore until they prove to me that I should, you know, so I'm just kind of over giving anyone the benefit of the doubt or, you know, this cautious optimism, because I just feel like these institutions are just so corrupt right now. And US soccer has just made so many mistakes that it's no different. And so, you know, win my trust back. I agree completely with Lindsay. I, I'm not jaded. But I'm super cynical when it comes to this type of regulatory bodies, these kinds of bodies. So they've got to prove that they deserve the respect, and then I'll start respecting. Bren, do you think that, is there any evidence to say that he is going to make an effort to grow the game on the U.S. side with Latino populations? Like, is that like something that he's indicated or said anywhere in his platform? Or is it just that, you know, he is um, Latino himself? Yeah, most of what it's kind of interesting. I mean, most of what he did rather than have a splashy PR website was he visited, I think, 11 different states to visit their youth soccer teams and talked a lot about how expensive it is. And the socioeconomic part is what makes it so hard to diversify U.S. soccer. And so his focus on, you know, youth soccer and visiting those contingencies rather than going to the professional side, which Kathy Carter seemed to be much more interested in doing, um, would in fact be be the way to make the game more diverse and to reach out to different populations, especially Miami, LA, New York City, you know, where where kids of color are playing and and kids who have real socioeconomic challenges. Hope Solo kind of said the same thing, but she doesn't have any relationship with youth soccer really. And how many parents, I mean I'm sorry to say it, but how many parents are like, go be like Hope? <laughs> it's it's complicated. You know, that's a complicated... Hope Solo wasn't the answer. Right. I just think she brought up good right. problems. No, totally. Right, you know, brought up important discussions. I agree. But I'm not saying, like, Hope Solo should have yeah, No, I totally... I don't think she should. Yeah. She doesn't have the diplomacy required to be able to do that. So, <laughs> a lot of this uh, relates to our next uh, topic, too. <laughs> but, yeah... So moving on to our next topic, Amira, do you want to lead us in? Yes. Well, yes. Yeah, so over the last few weeks, we, along with you know many reporters, have been tirelessly talking about the Nasser case, 
But I think we want to take a longer view because, as we have said before, but I really want to labor the point, while attention has been on Larry Nassar and the failures of USA Gymnastics, they are not the only sport in the Olympics and governed by the USOC, the United States Olympic Committee, that has been accused of or on the record of mishandling sexual abuse allegations and actually findings. And so we know, for instance, right, that the reason why Rachel Dell Hollander came forward about Nasser was actually because the Indy Star had had written a whole report on USA Gymnastics writ large. This summer, for instance, USA Taekwondo was named as a defendant with the United States Olympic Committee in defense, along with Mark Gittleman, who was accused of and eventually convicted of grooming three underage athletes. He would get them drunk in hotel rooms and rape them. They were aspiring Taekwondo competitors. One of the interesting things there is that they actually removed USA Taekwondo and the USOC as defendants. And so when they eventually convicted him and ordered him to pay $60 million to three of his victims, Yasmin Brown, Kendra Gatt, and Brianna Borden, it was actually him as an individual. Yet people don't have short memories. And so USA Taekwondo finds itself again back in this conversation about rampant and widespread sexual abuse. Along with that, about two weeks ago, we had a former USA swimmer, Ariana Kukors, who wrote a a stern piece against her former coach, Sean Hutchinson, alleging that he had groomed her for years and had an inappropriate relationship with her when he was 36 and she was 15. She says, quote, I think back on those times now tearfully asking why no one helped me, why no one stepped in to save me from this monster. It's still hard to comprehend, but Sean had perfected the art of grooming. I wasn't even aware that I needed saving. This essay that she penned and put online revealed information, new information about an investigation that had happened a few years ago and that had found uh, nothing, and an investigation that she and other critics have said was essentially a sham. She said the investigator asked her like 12 questions, and it wasn't really an in-depth investigation, which parallels a lot of the information we've been hearing around the USA Gymnastics case. Lastly, we also have in recent weeks a speed skater, who US, USA speed skater, who reported to the speed skating folks in Canada that their current coach, Michael Crow, who was formerly a USA speed skating coach, had engaged in sexual misconduct with her and other speed skaters um, in the United States for years. So these are, he is now suspended as they monitor these allegations. And so this week, our own Lindsay Gibbs wrote a really great article asking this question, what do we do with the Olympic spirit in a time, as we've just kind of discussed, where we don't trust these organizations. Now, this past Friday, the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, they gave a a deadline. They're opening their own investigation into USA Gymnastics, USOC, but also into these other sports as well. And so this past Friday was the deadline for uh, USA Gymnastics, USA Swimming, and USA Taekwondo to provide proof that they've handled these allegations in uh, a diligent and in-depth way. 
uh, the letter to the USOC and all the committees that they received said the abhorrent abuses associated with USA gymnastics and other sports are outrageous and raise concerns about whether the USA Olympic Committee has sufficient oversight mechanisms to protect young athletes from abuse and mistreatment. And so in a time, I ask you, in a time in which concerns about concussions and blackballing and all of this has affected conversations about how we watch and consume a sport like football. What do we do with the Winter Olympics upon us as we're watching these displays of Olympic spirit, knowing that we have multiple cases of widespread sexual abuse and the lack of the U.S. OC to protect its athletes? How does that affect us watching the Olympics at this moment when we see that they're about money, brand and winning over the safety of the athletes. It was it's been really hard for me honestly to watch these Olympics with this in the background. There is a one quote that has really stuck out to me in my research and it was from the Washington Post that uh, the Washington Post has done really great reporting on rampant sexual abuse within US OC sports and there was an exchange, this is when there was a sexual abuse complaint from USA Taekwondo in 2014. And Stephen Etsy, Esty, excuse me, who was the lawyer for a victim, asked USOC Associate General Counsel Gary Johansson if it was a top priority for the USOC to protect its athletes from sexual abuse. And Johansson re- responded, the USOC does not have athletes. And the lawyer, of course, pressed back and he said, walk me through that. You send athletes to the Olympics? but they're not your athletes. And he said, that's correct. And he said, why are they not your athletes? And they said, well, they're nominated by the national governing bodies to the USOC. So then when asked what team USA refers to, if not athletes, Johansson responded, that's a branding terminology. It's intellectual property. So you're watching the opening ceremonies and these athletes are, you know, dressed head to toe in team USA gear, marching together, you know, you've got Mike Pence there waving down at them and, you know, Gangnam style playing. And, you know, it's just a really weird moment. But at the same time, you're thinking the USOC sees this as a brand. They do not see these athletes as individuals they need to protect. And one of the things in Olympic sports and one of the ways that you get to see this continue to happen, that it's so hard to find accountability, is that these careers, these athletes are so short that by the time one group figures it out, they're done with their career and they're on to the next, you know, cycle. And with the, especially with Olympics being only every other, every four years, you know, the pressure to stay silent and to be, go with the status quo is just, is just immense. And look, we've talked a lot about Larry Nasser and what he did and, and the, uh, the abuse during medical treatment. But a lot of what this sexual abuse is, is grooming and it's inappropriate relationships between coaches and underage teammates that if you talk to people in the swimming community, say it was just the norm for years. And it seems like in Taekwondo also, like, you know, people just look the other way. They don't see these athletes, especially young female athletes, as people. They see them as property. So the fact that they're 15 and involved in a relationship with their 35-year-old coach, people don't Precisely, see that as They wrong. actually see it as like a natural occurrence of, of dedication, is that you're putting your all into your coach. Obviously, they're going to have a tight relationship, right? This is why it's so easy to groom because of the way people look the other way in pursuit of gold. And uh, another another stat from the Washington Post that I think exemplifies this kind of long spread and, and long 
dated problem, they estimate that over 290 coaches and officials for Olympic sports have been accused of sexual misconduct since 1982. Over 290. And I mean, I think it gets into as well, this sort of culture of of allowability, this culture of what's considered normalized. And I mean, in some ways, there's place trying to push back in different. I know that with swimming, a friend of mine, her daughter swims competitively, and they have to have at least two moms for the come on the trips with them, you know, like, and, and, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, my own daughter's soccer team, every practice, because her coaching staff is all male except for the team doctor is, is female but so she only comes on match days but so what we have is a mom on the bench schedule so that every time a mom or like a female relative or female identifying relative has to come and be in that space to prevent this kind of stuff and the coach said to us in the beginning of the year i realize this is a big commitment but it's to protect the girls and to protect us as well like to protect the entire team and i mean it's not super difficult to get that implemented and i think this is something that, like you know sport federations and associations should really think about like no those these are children in most cases these are young people they're young girls like why are they not they're not a brand they're they're, they're it's just oh it's so frustrating to think about yeah you know i think a lot of this has made me reflect on my time in high school athletics. And I mean, this is high school. It's nowhere near the stakes as some of these competitors that we're talking about. But I remember how much access the trainer had to us and to our bodies and how the training room was a place that you kind of knew that you were a little bit on display and that there was this kind of weird relationship there with the trainer. I think about my teammates and some close friends who went on to, you know, play at the collegiate level and the kind of relationship that they had in high school, right, with their male coaches who were supposed to be the people walking them through the process and therefore very close. And so calling them on their cell phones or having intimate access to how their body was feeling and and all of these things that, you know, that wasn't in this even upper echelon of elite sports, right? I mean, we were good, okay. But it wasn't in this upper echelon of elite sports. And I think about how even there you saw this permissibility towards the body and towards young athletes because it was always for like a pursuit of a higher goal. Yeah, and one thing I think that's important to know is that uh, the USOC president still has his job. (laughs) And there was actually a press conference at the beginning of these Olympic Games. And this is Scott Blackman that we're talking about. And all of the the board members were there, some uh, board members of the USOC. Scott Blackman is recovering from a surgery and wasn't able to make the trip to Pyeongchang. But they all just kept saying that he was uh, serving with distinction and that he had done a phenomenal job and that, yes, they were sorry for the athletes, but that um, and that, you know, they felt really bad for Nasser's victims. And but they said, hey, the USOC didn't come out of this unscathed. We've been we've been receiving a lot of criticism. But you just there's just an, an incredible lack of accountability. And you got to remember the USOC knew about Nasser's abuse for for more than a year before everything blew up. And it took them until after these hearings for them to call for the entire USOC board or US, excuse me, for the USOC to call for the entire USA gymnastics board to resign. That didn't happen until after 200 women spoke up. So I'm just, I'm over it. And look, I love these athletes and I love rooting for them. 
And, you know, we should know this happens across all federations. There's problems with this. You know, we just mentioned that Canada hired the speed skating guru who hit, who was dismissed from the United States because of these inappropriate relationships. And he was he, he was leading Canada speed skating until like three weeks ago. Like, you know, but it's just oh, it's so sad and it's so frustrating. And I think we as fans and journalists and we just have to keep demanding more accountability because we're the ones who are going to be able to report on this and follow this between these athlete regimes or generations, right? Who are going to be able to, to, to tie these threads together and that they should be able to focus on their sport while the rest of the fans and journalists and media really yeah. push for accountability and safety. Yeah. I, I mean, this is all like listening to you talk about this, Lindsay, it just sounds exactly like the NCAA. <laughs> And the, their own relationship. And I think that should ring true for a lot of people who listen to this and the way that we've talked about how the NCAA, you know, doesn't have accountability because they don't have to. It's not their athletes. Those athletes belong to the schools and they just, you know, oversee those programs. And that has always bothered me. And the other thing that, you know, when the thing came up this week about swimming, I saw people saying, you know, swimming is next. And I thought, is it really? Because there was a, a, it's a wonderful piece, but it's horribly difficult to read in Outside Magazine a few years ago about the swimming. And like, I don't even know if I ever read the whole thing because I had to read it in chunks because it was so upsetting to read. And it was so much about all of this stuff. And maybe we're in a different time now. That's what we all keep saying. And maybe things will be different going forward. But I'm I'm with you in my cynicism on how much we're going to change because like we don't seem to really care no matter how much people speak up. Next, Lindsay takes us into an amazing interview with Lindsay Van. Lindsay? Yeah, I'll let that interview kind of speak for itself here, but she was great. She was a pioneer in the sport and she's retired now and is watching the Olympics from home, just like we are. But we talked about her battle to get speed to get ski jumping into the Olympics and her experience in Sochi and what it's like flying through the air. Hello, everyone. I am so excited today to be joined by Lindsay Van. Lindsay is an icon of ski jumping. She won the very first gold at the women's ski jumping event at the Nordic World Ski Championships in 2009, which I believe in layman's terms means you were the first female ski jumping world champion. <laughs> and she was really the, the leader of the fight to get ski jumping into the Olympics, which first happened in Sochi back in 2014. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. I need to start with something very basic. What is ski jumping and how does one get into ski jumping? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Ski jumping is actually a very old sport, a very traditional sport and started out in Norway and has moved all across the world since then. It was in the first Olympics in 1924. Getting into ski jumping, well, you have to live near a ski jump and start out start out on very small jumps. I'm I'm talking like two to five meters. So when I started ski jumping, I started jumping over a hay bale. Oh wow. And you work on like basic technique and then you work your way up to bigger hills as you gain experience with the technique. How old were you when you first started ski jumping? I was seven years old. 
Oh, wow. That is amazing. So at what point did you realize, I'm really good at this. This is awesome. But there aren't enough opportunities for women in this sport. And I want to take on that cause. What was what was that journey like? That's a, a very loaded question. I don't know. Yeah. If I, you know, probably watching the 94 Olympics in Lillehammer, I was realizing there weren't women jumping. I don't know when I decided, oh, yeah, this is the cause I want to take on. It kind of <laughs> developed into that, you know, jumping after many, many years and starting to get, you know, the top of competing in my country. And it just kind of, I just kind of fell into it. Like the sport needed to move forward. It needed to progress and somebody needed to do it. And, you know, as much as I could look around and see, well, who else is going to do it? Or there wasn't a whole lot of options. So it kind of fell on me and a bunch of the other women around the world, like ranked in the top 10, top 20 in the world. One of our favorite quotes here, we we read this last week, was was from you. And it was when you were talking about this, this fight and you said, and there were all these men who were telling you, who seemed just very concerned about women's reproductive organs, you know, just <laughs> so, so concerned. And you said, I'm sorry, but my baby making organs are on the inside and men have an organ on the outside. So it's not safe for me jumping down, then my uterus is going to fall out. Well, what about the organ on the outside? outside of the body. We read that on the show last week and our readers loved it and we loved it. But is that the most, I mean, what are the other ridiculous reasons that people gave you throughout the years about why this was not a sport for the woman? That was probably the most ridiculous, but like that it was just dangerous from a medical standpoint of view or more dangerous for women because we're more fragile. You know, it was the idea, you know, from... 70 years ago, more than 70 years ago. And, you know, people are still bringing it up and it it kind of felt like they're bringing you back to the stone age. (laughs) Right. And it's like, I mean, it's not a safe sport for anyone really. (laughs) Like it's like, you know, you're jumping off of really high meters, like safety is not, you know, you want to make it the safest sport you can, but it's just so weird that that's where you would like draw the line for for safety. (laughs) Actually, it is the second safest sport in the Winter Olympics. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Why do you think that is? Because everything is so controlled because it is a very dangerous sport, but everything is so controlled. The wind is measured. The hill is very well prepared. They have all these guidelines and requirements they have to make. And a ski jumper has to be very experienced to get to that level. I mean, it takes years and years of training to even jump on the Olympic size hill. So it's not like you're just going out there and hucking your meat with no idea what you're doing. It's very high level experience and everything possible to be controlled is controlled. Every variable they can. I love that. I think one of my favorite things in learning about ski jumping and watching it is that there's not the same gender divide that there is in a lot of sports. I know that you actually held the, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you held the record for a while on the mountain where the, where the Vancouver Olympics were going to be contested. Is that correct? Like over the men and the women, there was a time where you would jump the farthest. Yeah. I held the hill record in, hill that they used for the Vancouver Olympics until the very last jump of the Olympics where the gold medal winner beat the hill record. 
Wow. And that's amazing because you weren't allowed to compete in this Olympics because the IOC had once again said ski jumping is not allowed, even though you guys had filed a gender dis- discrimination lawsuit. How frustrating was that watching from the sidelines and being like, like I could have won the silver for the men at this event? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very frustrating when when people bring up the gender divide and Every competition, you prove it wrong. I mean, you you look at the distance of the men and the women jumping on the same hill, and they go about the same distance. So when they bring up that argument, it's kind of ridiculous because, like, you can take any other sport and compare the men and women, and, yes, they are very different. And I'm not saying we could compete with the men. We have to have a little bit more speed because of strength and stuff. But essentially, from a spectator point of view, it doesn't look any different. Right. Do you think that the fact that the gender divide is so minuscule in looking at the results is a reason that there hasn't been more progress for the sport? A reason that maybe these stuffy old white men that rule all the sports everywhere aren't really excited to get uh, progress (laughs) in the gender progress here? Yeah, for sure. That was my theory a long time ago. And I believe it even more so now because I see our sport progressing more, but I don't see any more people that are controlling the sport, you know, bringing up those, those, the distances that are about the same. So it's, it's hard to see that. And it's hard. uh, It's like, they want to ignore it. And the, the gender divide is, is so close in ski jumping. And I think that is the problem because you take one of the original extreme sports and you let women do it, okay? Women jump as far. Well, how do people see that? Is it extreme? Right. as extreme if women are doing it at that level? I, I kind of think some men would not think so. But I don't know. It, that's my theory. I mean, I don't think anybody in power is ever going to admit that or right. even recognize that as a possible outcome for what, their decision. But... Who knows? I mean, yeah, we we, we can speculate (laughs) based on what we know that that probably has something to do with it. It probably scares the, you know, the establishment a little bit. Uh, Where does ski jumping go from here? Because as you mentioned, there's there is still there's there's the normal hill. So women are allowed to compete on the normal hill. And I use that word allowed very clearly because they're capable of competing also on the large hill, but they are not allowed to compete in that event at the Olympics. They're also then not allowed to compete in the team competition, which the men have. And then that means Nordic combined, which is a cross country skiing and ski jumping combined event is also not open to the women. Do you see any of that changing in the future? Or do you fear that people are going to say, okay, well, at least there's ski jumping in the Olympics. Like this fight is over. No, I, I I do think it'll change eventually. I think it's going to take time, and I think it's going to take a lot of really pissed off people <laughs> bringing up the point over and over again. At this point, since our first Olympics was in 2014, and this is our second time we're in the Olympics, I feel like a lot of the, the competitors and the people within the sport are trying to stay low and, you know, appreciate what they have and don't want to push too hard right now. But I don't see that lasting very long. I hear athletes talking. I hear officials talking about 
large hill competitions and we we do have large hill competitions in the world cup and we we train on these hills all the time i mean not me i don't jump anymore but these women train on these hills all the time and compete on them quite often as well and i think eventually it's going to get to that point where people are frustrated and want to see the sport progress and i guess they're just going to have to take enough pissed off people to, to get to that point Right. <laughs> just just keep keep yelling at him, right? Keep pushing. Yeah. Let's talk about the competition this year. I think unfortunately by the time we air this, just due to, you know, timing and the time zones, by the time this goes up on Tuesday morning, the the competition might be over. So I don't wanna go too far in depth, but who are the ski jumpers watching now that you really enjoy? And and who sh- who do you who do you like to watch jump? Are you talking women or men or let's all? talk let's talk women and then if you have any men, you know, we can give them a little attention too, but not too much. <laughs> <laughs> women, we have a team there from the US, Sarah Hendrickson, Abby Hughes, and Nita England. They're in the middle of the pack pack right now. I hope they'll do better, but we'll see. But the ones to watch right now are Karina Vogt, German girl who's the Olympic champion from 2014, Sarah Takanashi from Japan. Yuki Ito from Japan, Marin Lundby from Norway, who's been leading the overall World Cup all year, and Karina Althaus from Germany, who's been doing very well as well. That's awesome. What's your best memory from Sochi, from, you know, finally getting that moment to to take off and fly at the Olympics? Whoa, that's a loaded question. I mean, the whole experience was pretty amazing. Walking in opening ceremonies was like no other experience I've ever had in my life. I think I cried the whole time. I actually think I blacked out. <laughs> and even watching last night, I was in tears. And it's just the emotion that brings back is is crazy. And then I was watching the men's competition today, and I, I could see how nervous they all were. You know, they're on the world stage, and it's uh, it's it's a different atmosphere, and it's heavy. And I guess just to participate there was amazing. And knowing that we got our sport there and it was a dream of mine from, you know, seven years old to be able to compete there in, and I guess standing at the top of the jump and realizing, oh my God, I'm here. It's happening right now. What does it feel like to be flying in the air? Is there any way to describe that to a scaredy cat like me (laughs) or to a, to a person who's never, never taken off? What does that feel like? No, you know, I've tried to put it into words so many times and there just really aren't words for it. And I think that is part of the draw of the sport and what appeals to a lot of ski jumpers is that you can't explain it, but it's so addicting and you just want to keep going and trying again. I guess the best way I could describe it would be if you put your hand out the window at 60 miles an hour and you move it around a little bit, you can feel every little movement is like magnified on your whole hand and your hand will start going in different directions. It's like that on your whole body, but plus with skis. So you honestly feel like you're flying, you're in control and you can manipulate your body however you want to try to gain more lift and that's the closest thing I, I can explain it to. That sounds amazing. Well, listen, thank you so, so much. We will be watching the ski jumping. I know you are retired now, which is unfortunate, but your uh, mark on the sport will definitely last forever. And thank you so much for joining us on Burn It All Down. 
All right. Thanks a lot. It's a lot less stressful being retired. That's for sure. <laughs> I don't know. You don't get more stressed watching. I get so stressed watching. <laughs> I, I do get stressed watching. And I was watching the men's event this morning at five o'clock screaming. <laughs> and I definitely woke up some people in my building. <laughs> yeah, that definitely happens. All right. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Now on to our favorite segment, the burn pile. Brenda, do you want to go first? Sure. So I have a pretty quick and sparkly burn. I don't know like, how to say that. It's just sparkly. It's like a, a spark to a flame and it's not all that intricate and it's easy to understand. The Peruvian Olympic Committee was founded in 1924. It was approved by the IOC in 1936. So it's a it's an old institution. And they have a couple athletes this year, too, in particular, that qualified to go to the Winter Olympics. And one of them is Ornella Oedel. She actually is an alpine skier, and her younger brother had represented Peru in 2014. So she comes from a long history and line of, of athletes. She has a Peruvian mother and a German father, and she took a year off of university to qualify. This, the, what, what has happened is the Peruvian committee decided just not to register her. Yeah. Just not fill out the paperwork. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Way to go, dumbasses. And they basically, they basically, right. I mean, this is, again, this is almost a hundred year institution that is perfectly capable of doing this. And it's not only for her, there's, there's one other athlete as well, but they registered for the winter games in 2010 and 2014. This isn't something they're not able to do. And yeah, I want to burn the bureaucracy that is perfectly capable to work like a machine when it comes to keeping women and working class and people of color out of their ranks. And then is totally just, you know, elitist and also inefficient when it comes to registering athletes that have qualified for the Olympics. It's heartbreaking. My, my, you know, sentiments go out to both of those young athletes who won't get a chance to compete for no other reason then the Peruvian National Olympic Committee just, you know, called it, you know, phoned in, phoned it in, couldn't show up for work that day. You, they had one job. That's ridiculous. One job. Yeah. So burn it. Burn. Yes. Burn that. Just. Yeah. So my burn pile is sports adjacent this week. So Brett Stevens, he's a conservative columnist at the New York Times. He decided that he needed to dedicate his latest column to defending Woody Allen from Dylan Farrow, who has repeatedly maintained that Allen, who was her adoptive father, molested her when she was a child. You already know what he says. He calls Farrow's credibility into question, talks about false accusations, and writes such mind-bending lines as, quote, it's precisely because Dylan's account plays to our existing biases that we need to treat it with added skepticism. So sure, dude. Also, I just, I want to say it's worth noting that nothing has happened to Woody Allen. <laughs> so in making, yeah, but in making his case, this is what I wanted to get to. Stevens writes, or yeah, Stevens writes, quote, if Allen is in fact a pedophile, he appears to have acted on his evil fantasies exactly once. Compare that to Larry Nasser's 265 identified victims. No, 
No, no, you do not get to use the collective voices of those victims against someone else speaking out. You don't get to say that one victim alone is incredible simply because they're the only one. And that's disputable with Alan anyway, given, you know, his wife. But for so long, plenty of Nasser's victims believed they were alone. Plenty of them didn't understand what had happened to them. They couldn't name it. And now that people finally care about Nasser's victims after shrugging or yawning at them until they collectively spoke out on camera in a week-long airing of the violence that they faced because they existed at the intersection of multiple failed institutions, now that people finally care, you don't get to use them as weapons in your backlash against Me Too. I don't want to ever see this again, ever. Don't do that. Burn that shit. Burn. Burn Torch it. Torch. Burn it. Amira? Yeah, this week, us, Andrea Andong, as well as some other people have been drawing attention to the increased diversity at the Winter Games, having a conversation about out athletes at the Games. And apparently for some, this conversation is a terrible example of political correctness run amok. In a column written by Fox News executive editor John Moody, entitled In the Olympics, let's focus on the winner of the race, not the race of the winner. He had, yeah, the whole article is just, you know, a dud, as you would expect. But in particular, there's one line that I really had to burn, and it's this. Unless it's changed overnight, the motto of the Olympics since 1894 has been faster, higher, stronger. It appears that the U.S. Olympic Committee would like to change that to darker, gayer, different. And I just, what a historicism, first of all. 1884, it has been faster, higher, stronger. But in 1932, both Tide Pickett and Louisa Stokes, black women uh, track runners, made the Olympic team but were left out of competition because they were darker and different. That same year, German runner Otto Peltzer uh, competed in the Games, only to be arrested two years later and sent to a concentration camp because he was gayer and different. So don't get on a high horse and act like somehow acknowledging these these histories and the fact that we still have a huge disparity in access to <laughs> Olympic sports and to representation is do I just it, everything about that and you can tell that it was even a terrible column because guess what Fox News removed the column. Oh, my God. How terrible of a column (laughs) do you have to be to get Fox News to remove the post saying, quote, it does not reflect the views or values of Fox News. Wow. (laughs) That's the level. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It was from the um, executive editor. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You know, but the thing and the reason why I want to burn this is people may not be using that that phrase darker, gay, or different, but there's a lot of things along the lines that seem to reflect this idea that by somehow saying, hey, there's not a lot of people of color in the Winter Games is quote unquote bringing the race into the conversation or dealing with uh, or, or noting that people are still not recognizing out athletes or saying, oh, we're somehow, you know, being politically correct, run amok or whatnot. No, this is just dumb and I can't believe we're still having this conversation. I'm burning. <laughs> Burn. Burn. I'm going to go next, but I've actually started thinking that I want darker gear different on a t-shirt. <laughs> I, would, I think that's an amazing slogan. Like I, just, I would love it. And, you know, if my friends from the LGBTIQ community were like, 
cool with it. Like I would, I would just love it. I think it would be amazing. Anyways, my burn is uh, regarding Olympics as well. So we've been seeing, you know, beautiful montages and how, you know, the parade of nations, everyone comes together. So I saw a, a uh, article last night and about the Pyeongchang officials canceling a Muslim prayer space because of anti-Muslim protests. So what happened was I think a couple of countries I know Pakistan has a delegation and they just requested in uh, if there would be a multi-faith prayer space, which to be very honest with you, as someone who's participated <laughs> in university, they're trying to create multi-faith prayer space. It just really ends up being Muslims using this space. Like, honestly, like we've had a couple of people who've shared it with the Buddhist communities, but usually ends up taking the space. So they decided to, they decided to actually this group, and I'll read this from this article, much of the hostility has flowed from the Pyeongchang Olympics Gangwon Citizens Islam Countermeasure Association. Like, you can't put that on a mug or on a button because, like, Gangwon Citizens Islam Countermeasure Association, a relatively new group that pushed a petition against the prayer room via Google. So the petition, which stoked fear about radical Islam in the South Korean province of Gangwon, has collected more than 56 thousand digital signatures. So in this article, it also goes on to say that the pressure was so much on the officials of that space, of that place, that they were unable to perform their duties. So getting hit with a digital petition, I mean, you know, really had them resign to do nothing but cancel the space. And for me, that tells me about a little bit of cowardice on a part of those officials, like not everything is going to be easy. But, you know, I I just sort of, I, I, I'm a practicing Muslim and, you know, keep my eyes open. I really hadn't heard anything about, you know, Islam perforating in such a radical way in Gangwon. I just, I don't know. I'd never heard about it, but whatever I could be, I could, you know, be ignorant to it. So anyways, that I thought was really sad considering part of the spirit of the Olympics is to appreciate and let people celebrate their differences. And I mean, I guess everyone's welcome, but not if they want to pray. So, I mean, this could be easily avoided. Muslims can pray in corners. I've prayed under stairwells. It's really not that difficult. You just, you know, find a space, face towards Mecca and off you go. So you don't necessarily need a room, but I just, I don't like the tone of this. I think it's unfair and I want to burn it. Burn. 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 Lindsay. Okay, first of all, I just want to make a, a clarification. I'm sorry, Shereen, that I was not listening closely to you because in this little chat, okay, for, for all of our listeners, we have a little chat box that we use while we're recording to keep track of like who's talking next and everything. And after a mirror section about uh, darker, gay, or different, Brenda, who is a professor, I should mind you, Types in our chat box. Who is gray? Like old people? <laughs> so we've all been cr- darker gray or different. <laughs> so we've all been just crying, laughing. And I would just like to clarify in case any of our listeners were confused. It was gayer, gayer, not grayer. Although <laughs> we love the grays. We do and the love gays. the older Olympians as well, but we don't want to displace the gay Olympians who are breaking, you know, boundaries. Ooh, okay. All right. That was so good. Sorry. I'm still crying. Okay. But, but I would just like to very quickly though, rage on James Dolan, who is a, the owner of the New York Liberty, the WNBA team, who announced a few months ago that he was going to sell the New York Liberty, which 
was a little confusing because on one hand, I would like James Dolan to get far, far away from anything I like. <laughs> that would be great. But on the other hand, I really like having the New York Liberty at Madison Square Garden in New York City. It's a historic franchise. And it seems like he did what you're not supposed to do, which is announce that you're selling before there's a buyer or, you know, buyers interested. So that was bad. So there's been a few months of radio silence. And then the, the WNBA schedule was released this week. So we knew that well, presumably they have to know where New York is playing, right? So we should have some sort of an answer. Well, it turns out it is the worst case scenario for the New York Liberty. What's happening is James Dolan is keeping the New York Liberty because he couldn't find a buyer that, that would pay what he wanted. But he's moving the team to a stadium in arena in Westchester that seats 5,000. Now, the Liberty usually attracted 10,000 fans at their games in the Madison Square Garden. So not only is he just, is he keeping the team, even though he's the worst person and has, uh, you know, sexual harasser Isaiah Thomas running the team as the team president, but now he's moving it away from where most of his fans access and he's going to drive down the, the, profit and the, you know, the market for the team by making it in a limited capacity. That is absurd. And it pisses me off. Now they did announce that the, that the women will still play a few games in Madison Square Garden. Of course, they are all, they're all daytime games, which means they're the games that nobody can go to other than camp kids. So James Dolan, I hate you. And I would like to, I would like to quote our friend Howard Megdal, who runs the summit, which I write for sometimes and we're big fans of. Let's just quote him. He says, so to review, Dolan declared he was selling the Liberty before finding a buyer, driving down the potential sale price, and ultimately chose not to sell because no one met his asking price. Now he's keeping the team running, but entirely of his own accord, ripping it away from its traditional home and making it far more difficult for fans of the team to watch, with attendance set to plummet by definition, eroding the fan base, making it more difficult for him to find someone to meet his sale price. On the plus side, Howard says... Isaiah Thomas still has a job. (laughs) Now on to celebrating some incredible women. Jess, you want to take us through the honorable mentions? Yeah. So honorable mentions this week, we have Smriti Mardana, who scored 135 off of only 129 deliveries and ensured that India qualifies for the next Cricket World Cup. Venus Williams, who played her 1,000th career singles match on Saturday, and it was a victory for the U.S. in the Fed Cup. Malala released a a list of game changers. It's a group of young women who are not only champions in their chosen sports, but also champions of social justice. The list includes indigenous runner Tracy Leost, who was our guest way back on episode 12 of Burn It All Down, and Brianna Scurry, who has now officially been inducted into the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame. And can I get a drum roll, my friends? This week's badass woman of the week is Laura Gomez, the lone woman representing Colombia at the Olympics in speed skating, and who was only notified seven days before the start of the Olympics that she would actually be attending the Winter Games in Pyeongchang. Gomez is a recognized inline skater and only began speed skating a year ago. So that's incredible. We will be rooting for you. Let's talk about what's good in our worlds. Lens, you want to go first? 
Yeah, uh, sure. (laughs) I have to say that I am just excited that February is trucking along. I'm ready for this month to be over. I'm ready for the cold weather to be over. And so the only positive thing in my life right now is that time is moving forward. (laughs) Amira. (laughs) What's good in your world? (laughs) (laughs) Well... I don't know. Jess is coming this week to State College. So I am thrilled. And that's really the biggest thing that I'm looking forward to. I'm just so happy. I also have a few talks this week. Jules Boykoff and Minky Warden and Teresa Runsettler on the Olympic talks. One's in New York. One's in at American. So it's going to be a very busy week. And (laughs) least anybody forget, Black Panther premieres. Thursday night, officially on Friday the 16th. We are now less than a week away from the Blackest movie being released in the middle of Black History Month, and I am absolutely thrilled. I have my outfit ready. I have my Wu-Tang with Wakanda pin. I am so ready. Wait, Amir, American, does that mean you're going to be in D.C. this week and you didn't tell me? Oh, I am. I am, Lindsay. Can I see you, too? Oh, now I have two something good. I don't know. You didn't tell me, so we'll have to think about it. But Oh, hush. I will text you. We will make it happen. I'm going to go next. Just so everybody knows, before we started recording, Canada finished five. Canada's women's hockey team finished 5 nothing against the Olympic athletes of Russia. So we're good. I know everyone's stressed out about that like I am. I also am coming off an incredible three days with Brenda in Montreal where we had tons of fun, got some Le Canadien swag, met some really cool people and just generally had an incredible time in the blizzards of Montreal. So that's basically where that is. Women's hockey is keeping me super happy and I also am watching those uh, montages. Just today I saw one of being narrated by Jim Carrey. I know, bear with me. I know Jim Carrey, but it was the words of Gord Downey, Canada's celebrated and recently passed away, tragically hip singer. So it just, it made me cry. So I'm watching those. Who did I forget? Bren. <laughs> I have good things sometimes. <laughs> I'm going to see the gender bending singer Borns in Brooklyn this week, which I'm pretty excited about. And also, I don't know if you guys remember Valentine's Day making Valentine's Day mailboxes. And cards in your class. So back before Valentine's Day got depressing, creepy, or I don't know, awesome for some of you that are really lucky in love. You know, as a third grader, my daughter has, you know, a real sense of friendship about Valentine's Day. And it's a super cool construction project. So we're making her mailbox. And then we go through all of her friends and she writes out cards to everyone. And I think that's really great and special and cute. So I'm excited to be doing some arts and crafts that I can actually manage because (laughs) I tried to make a volcano last semester and it was a real bad deal. I mean, you know, I put forks in the toaster. So imagine what happens when I try to make a volcano, but I can do it. What? Yeah. That's so funny because I literally, like, that's the opposite of my something good. I'm in Valentine Hell with three class lists. <laughs> oh, And I I'm like so it. over it. So if you want to do my kids, like, I have, you know, three Valentine's lists that I will send to you. I do. I even like those, like, lacy white construction paper things oh, that you put awful. behind the heart. I love it. I feel like, oh, they're so cute. And it's before love goes all wrong for them. <laughs> <laughs> 
<clears throat> so, Jessica. Yeah, so uh, yeah, Wednesday is Valentine's Day, but Tuesday is Galentine's Day. So I wanted to say happy Galentine's Day Aww. to all my gals. Aww. Today is actually the 19th anniversary of the day that I met Aaron, Aww. who's my husband. Aww. So that's Aww. pretty cool. We're inching up on the two decades here. And then, of course, I'm very thrilled that I get to see Amira this week. That is awesome. I just want to take this time now to thank our flamethrowers who have contributed to our Patreon campaign. And those who don't know about it, what happens is you pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. And with the price of a coffee a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, an opportunity to record the burn pile, only available to those in our Patreon community. So far, we've been able to solidify funding for proper editing and transcripts, but are hoping to reach our dream of hiring a producer to help us grow the show. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we all really believe in this podcast, but having a producer to help us grow would be amazing, as would be the opportunity for us all to meet and go on the road for live Burn It All Down. On behalf of Amira, Jessica, Lindsay, and Brenda, I'm Shireen, and that's it for this week in Bias. And I'm sorry.